Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on June 16th, 2023. Since April 2016, Craig Roncase has been the Urban Park Manager for the University of Pennsylvania. The Urban Park Department consists of five shops The urban park operation covers campus landscaping maintenance, athletic field management, Penn Park, all heart surface maintenance, and the campus-wide waste recycling program. Before Penn, Craig worked in multiple roles as the grounds area manager for Temple University at both Ambler and main campuses. Craig was first introduced to the landscaping world by way of the golf course. Craig spent three years as a landscape manager for a large New Jersey-based landscaping corporation, where he managed multiple teams in both turf grass and horticulture maintenance within the local New Jersey, Pennsylvania region. In addition to his turf education, Craig earned his MBA from Temple University's Fox School of Business and his BA from Eastern University. In addition to his current position at Penn, Craig is the owner of Sports Turf Management Resources, LLC which is a sports turf lawn and landscaping consulting firm with a portion of the proceeds going towards suicide awareness. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Craig. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you, Craig. And uh, like Eva just said, thanks for joining us. Penn has a lot of presence in the region. And uh, I thought we'd start by finding out how you found your way to horticulture and to the University of Pennsylvania? Great lead-in question. And, and again, thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to uh, 
have a conversation about uh, my little world at Penn. So how did I get into this business? Actually, it was through uh, the golf course industry first. I first started working outside uh, for some local golf courses in the area, and I really got to like the uh, just the outdoor nature of working and and just being in nature getting up with the sunrise and uh, learning all the ins and outs and the techniques of landscaping uh, specific to turf grass management at the time been doing this outside business since probably mid mid 80s i grew up like i said through the industries and went back to school for my turf grass degree at Rutgers up in new brunswick shortly after that i had became the superintendent of a local New Jersey uh, private golf course. Okay. So it just took off from there. Uh, after the golf course work, I did work for a local landscaping corporation for three years, doing more landscape maintenance and sales, snow removal. We did bring in a sports turf management style, uh, I want to say division when I got there and we did maintenance for local golf courses and sporting facilities. And that was for about three years. And then Temple, Temple University came calling. They actually reached out to me. I had forgotten I had a, a resume out on monster.com, not the energy drink, the uh, the old, right. the old indeed, I call it. Um, <laughs> I wasn't, I just totally forgot it was out there. They cold called me said that there's an opportunity to get into uh, the grounds maintenance team as a manager at Temple. Uh, so I pursued it. And one thing led to another. A few months later, I was there. And I was there from 03 until 2013, uh, working on the main campus in the grounds department as one of the managers. In 2013, I went up full-time to the Ambler campus, uh, where Eva, that's where I got to meet you. Yeah, yeah, that, um, that's right. Yeah. And so I was the area manager for the Ambler campus. And for those who are maybe not sure what is entailed up there, that's all kinds of horticulture and turf grass management with that sporting uh, complex that they have. And so, yeah, it was, it was a very different change in environment, but the roles were very similar. I still had facilities work. I was still in with the buildings more so at Ambler than the main, but it, it just, it was good synergy. And I was already up at Ambler during my time at the main campus because I was also the sports turf manager, which all the fields were up up at Ambler. So I was always back and forth. And then in 20, 2015, there was an opportunity I saw at University of Pennsylvania's campus uh, for an urban park manager. And, you know, a few phone interviews, screenings, whatever you may call them, and then regular interviews later, I was hired at Penn. I started in April 2016, and I've been there ever since. Okay. It's a big jump from like the city, managing the city campus to Ambler, for example, mm -hmm. because we had Glenn Eck on, who's the head, yeah. head of yeah. horticulture down there. And and the amount of trash that people have to pick up on a university campus is absolutely obscene. <laughs> it's obscene. And so you really spend a lot of time doing that. And there's so many other things that you have to do as a manager and to make sure that things always look like you're expecting guests. Yeah, yeah. Right? How do you do that? Like, how, how does that happen? So it's a, another great question. So yes, unfortunately, where we are situated in this urban environment with many folks from our community just walking through our campus, let alone driving through the main arteries, right? 
there is a lot of trash. There is a lot of litter. And whether it was here or at Temple, uh, I remember at Temple, you know, we were using two-way radios at the time and somebody called me, one of my staff members, and said somebody had let loose like a, a newspaper box full of newspapers uh, up on Broad Street. And I jokingly said, ah, don't worry about it. The wind's heading in the direction of Penn. We'll just let it blow down the pen. <laughs> And now here I am at Penn picking up those newspapers, so to speak. Uh, it's amazing the amount of, 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 of trash that we do pick up. And it's it's just part of the uh, part of the business. So first and foremost, uh, we have a great staff and they know each and every day something's going to be different. But early in the morning, they all go out. They have their areas. They police their areas. Uh, we can tell if the trash has been there for a few days. Perhaps they haven't seen it or just didn't get to it. There's a lot of eyes and, and folks out there that will tell us that this trash has been here for a little bit. So we do take we take pride, although it's you know it's it's a tough job, but we do take pride in cleaning up the area and getting it ready and presented for the day. And with Glenn, when I was working with Glenn at Temple, it was the same idea. It was just you know we're trying to put these beautiful landscapes and little eco environments here and there for events, for functionality, whatever it may be. But first, you know we got to take care of the small stuff first. So, so it doesn't become big issues later and then move on with our day. So can you kind of give us an idea? I, I know that your days are, you know, long. And mm -hmm. can you give us an idea of some of the things that you have to do in your position to make that campus the face of, of the school? It's incredibly important. And people just sometimes downplay the maintenance of a campus. Yeah. So here at Penn, we do have, I have a nice sizable staff uh, with five shops and, and five supervisors, each responsible for their own shop. We work under the facilities and real estate services division, although we're not divided by no means with, with the campus. It's called a division, but it's more of a, you know, a department collectively working with all the other schools and centers. So we're always communicating within ourselves, with our own branches, within res is what we call it to the outside, you know, other schools and centers. And on any given day, I could meet and collaborate and work with folks from some of our branches, uh, as well as across the campus. It, you know, I have an agenda, uh, but, you know, in this business, issues come up and they come up often unannounced and we just need to adjust and alter the plans, whether it be a city issue, you know, last week's air quality from the Canadian wildfires, uh, that threw a little curveball at us on Wednesday evening knowing that Thursday morning, we were going to have to bring our staff inside. And we do have work to do inside. Do we have enough work to keep them busy all day? It's a tall task. Uh, we did it. And that Wednesday evening, I communicated out with the customers that we were supposed to be dealing with on Thursday and said, hey, listen, we're going to be backed up a little bit. We're going to get to your stuff, but it might not be until the afternoon or the evening. And they all understood. And it's just keeping that balance, keeping that channel of communication open, to ensure that you know the product that we're putting out, we're doing it safely at the expectations that of the Penn standards, we'll call it. Yeah, from a safety standpoint too, you know, you always have to worry about your team's safety when you're mm -hmm. when you're working, whether it's working near a street, you know, with traffic or crossing the street with traffic and your equipment. All of that plays into an enormous logistics problem or yeah. logistics. Oh, just I just think about that, you know, seeing the traffic down in that area is just. Yeah, incredible. yeah. Yes. For us, safety is first. Every morning, our shops talk safety. We have 
our environmental health and radiation services team, EHRS. We're in constant communication uh, with them, whether it's for types of waste we're seeing out in the street to harness to safety to it may be traffic control. We get the big tree work companies in here. Uh, they have to give me a plan, a plan of their work for the day first before I let them in on campus. Like, okay, how are we coning it off? Do I have the area managers on board and their directors on board? Uh, where are the pedestrians going to walk while this tree work, let's say, is happening? So we try to mitigate any issues way ahead of time. And it takes a lot longer to get the work done at Penn just for those reasons. You know, the campus, uh, Craig, is clearly a, a mix of the very old and historical and then just the amazing forward movement of uh, new architecture and new construction. I want to talk about the landscape installations that go on. I'm assuming, you know, every year uh, with a variable timeline, new projects are coming along. wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. Because Penn has a master's in sustainability, a very well-regarded program, are you able to you know, interface with that curriculum? Yeah, actually, so I do work closely with, uh, like I said earlier, uh, a couple specific of branches of our FRES division, the Office of the University Architect and those staff members there. Uh, you may know, well, you know Bob and Chloe and their teams. Right. Yeah. Uh, as well as our planning and design teams. And our planning and design teams, what a robust branch that is. It's just so formidable. We have so much work going on, whether it's new building installations, which comes with landscaping and stormwater management and all that good stuff, or renovations to buildings. Uh, right now, we're going through a 34th Street streetscape project that it's a headache. I, I won't be. Uh, I will be honest with you. Right now, the 34th Street corridor is tough to get through because we're doing this. We're beautifying 34th Street. So I work closely with those types of teams and plans and projects that are you know slated for installation. They're discussed and reviewed way ahead of time. Currently, I'm reviewing plans for what's going to be the Stuart Weitzman Building, which will be an addition to an existing building. Uh, that's not scheduled to break ground, I believe, until you know next year sometime. So we're way ahead of schedule. We're going through those processes of, oh, what's going to work, what's not going to work, at least on paper. You know, how are we going to take care of snow removal and, and de-ice the, this area? And what kind of issues may we have with that? To the normal maintenance, the, the warranties or where we meet up with the housekeeping team just to make sure we're all on the same page. So it's my job to ensure and keep that maintenance of the installation when that happens, to keep, just keep eyes on it. It's typically contracted out, let's say for a new building, a new install, but we are always communicating with those folks. And then we monitor those landscapes uh, during their warranty periods and keep tabs on what's happening, what's what needs to be worked on, that kind of stuff. And then as we near the end of our warranty, uh, we do walkthroughs. We do walkthroughs with the project managers, uh, all the stakeholders, the, the vendors. And if there's any issues, landscaping, you know, trees that might need to be replaced, whatever it may be, we settle that out before the whole project is then turned over to to me and to trades and whatever else is under warranty. You spoke about this Penn Masters of Sustainability. Right, yeah. And those, those students, and they certainly do fit into our work and what we do. And not just in the landscaping realm, our sustainability department, we have a rather large sustainability department at facilities who also work closely with our operations 
and they help ensure that we stay the course, you know, and meet those standards, standards like LEEDS certified buildings, uh, which has many layers, including our landscaping maintenance and the maintenance programs in general. I specifically don't work hand in hand with any of those students, but from time to time, they are brought in to be part of the projects. So yes, so they're whether they're interns or they're full-time staff members who are still at school, it's just a you know a, a nice bunch of, of folks to work with. I have to say here that you know I, I do sit on the tree advisory for Penn mm-hmm. and you do have a lot of students who come in and do presentations, which I, I've never seen an organization or a committee like this where the students actually interact so heavily with the committees that are on campus, which I think is amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's nice to keep them involved, whether it's for their academic you know, needs, but to get their perspectives. You know, they're utilizing campus in ways that I'm not, whether it's as a student here or somewhere else. And it's really nice to get those perspectives. And, you know, I use my children as an example. If it wasn't for my children, who my youngest is in college, I wouldn't know much about, you know, the new social platforms and whatnot. You know, I'm a Facebook, which is like to them, it's a phone book. But yes, yeah, so just learning and, and the same idea at Penn, the amount of folks who come in each year and just to sit down and, and talk to some of the interns. It's really, it's really special. Well, one of the other things I wanted to mention is that this is a tree podcast, but we also have to realize that trees are a critical part of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And the more we talk about them as part of the infrastructure, the living beings, but they are part of the infrastructure that you can't talk about trees without understanding everything else that's going on, because that's going to determine what you're going to select for your tree base or where you're going to put things and how that's all going to play out. And I know Hal and I talk about it all the time, you know, what's going to happen at this place and how are they going to handle that? Yeah. Well, I mean, our our tree cover is amazing. Our canopy is just overwhelming. And I, I would just invite anybody, especially during those, you know, summertime, great, it's hot. There's not much color out there compared to the perennial color you get maybe early in the spring through around now. But just to walk the campus, to walk Locust Walk or to walk uh, near our engineering facility, it's really special. And just to look up and see the the different canopy structures, the different types of old historic trees and buildings. But yeah, I mean, we have, I want to say close to 8,000 trees and or shrubs, you know, mixed together on this campus, which, you know, you're you're managing different sizes and shapes and types and ages, and it is complex. But we partner. I can't do it all myself. We partner with Morris Arboretum. We partner with folks like yourselves, uh, our in-house staff, our contracted service providers for the tree work itself. Uh, and if it wasn't for that team, I don't think we could get through it. It's really takes a village, so they say. One of my favorite innovations on campus, Craig, I'm originally from Chicago, uh, which has a tremendous, uh, what we call a parkway system. So instead of street trees being planted into three by five pits, uh, there's a uh, pre existing 10 foot wide grassy strip, residential and in many of the uh, commercial areas. You mentioned 34th Street, mm-hmm. and that has always been a favorite innovation in terms of the use of stone fines, yeah. which I didn't even know was a thing, but I've been <laughs> well aware of it for 15, 20 years is whenever I'm down there, 
and watching the performance of Street Tree Growth and that the, the stone finds seem to be that perfect interface of letting water percolate in at the same time managing weeds and I'm assuming not a whole lot of maintenance. So I thought I'd just give a shout out to the Stone Finds on 34th Street. Oh, well, we appreciate that. We have Stone <laughs> Finds 34th, 33rd, Spruce, Walnut, Chestnut. They do provide what you just spoke of. Uh, there is some maintenance, uh, different types of issues. Yeah, we do have a little weed encroachment, whatnot. But during Penn Relays, where this campus is full of athletes, which is great, uh, they sometimes find areas on campus to, let's say, warm up and get loose and start their sprinting before they get into the actual stadium. And a lot of our stone finds seem to be displaced during that week. <laughs> so we're doing a lot of brooming back and putting them back in between, which is very tight window between the end of the relays and when commencement activities start about right, two weeks right. later. Yeah. But uh, we just keep, you know, a bulk handful of stone finds, you know, in our in our stock and, and just keep at it. Yeah. Do you get your stone finds from the same place all the time so that they look consistent? We, we try to. Yeah, I forget the name yeah. of the local quarry, but uh, one of our landscape contractors who we use, who's on our contract for getting and procuring some of our plant material and whatnot, uh, we reach out to them. And, and if they can't find it, they have to find it somewhere else. And it must, it, it, it has to look at least, you know, real close. That's a real issue because, yeah. you know, if you start with one and I've been in different places where you'll see the change up because they can't find it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not being quarried anymore. Or yeah. So we had a delay. Uh, I don't know if it was because of COVID, but we'll blame it on COVID uh, where we had a good 18 month stretch, stretch where we had to just hold off and we couldn't find it, whether it wasn't being quarried due to staffing issues and, right. you know, the health concerns. Uh, but we finally got back into it. Yeah. So do you want to tell our listeners why you use stone finds? I think it's not everybody not everybody knows why you're using them. Sure. I mean, well, to what Hal had said earlier, that's uh, many of the, the reasons why. And I didn't know this was an option, honestly, until I got to Penn. And I'm like, where are the tree grates? And why aren't we just using right. wel welders yeah. as the trees grow and the grates get encroached upon and we just cut them back and back and back? Uh, which restricts your growth and your and it actually collects trash uh, underneath yes. and then you can't get to it. Uh, it seems that our local skateboarders, at least at Temple, had means of removing these grates for ramps. Oh yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I don't. Those things are heavy, and <laughs> you know, so all these different issues that you might not necessarily think could be an issue, they are an issue in an urban environment, but. Uh, the stone finds still protect the root mass and the root structures. Um, and they give a little bit more breathing room, so to speak. They do percolate. They actually hide trash well on the surface. You might have to come up on top of it and say, I didn't notice there was a few cigarette butts there. And, you know, they have all kinds of different purposes. But for us, maintenance-wise, it's easier to replenish them. It's cost-positive for us, you know, keeping 25 tons of stone finds, you know, in-house material pile somewhere else is, is a little bit simpler than, you know, procuring these tree grates or rubber matting, whatever it may be. But, it, you know, form and function, form follows function. And I've, I've gone down to Florida and I see different types of trees, different types of tree areas and tree grates or, you know, tree pits. Uh, so it really depends on where you are. And it does allow the roots to 
not get compacted too. Mm -hmm. So surprisingly, it works really well. And it also allows the, like you were saying, percolation, allows the water to get through and that prevents the runoff. On your on your roadways close Absolutely. by, it helps. and and I think that that's one of the things I know that Penn has an incredible sustainability plan. It was a twenty five year plan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that plan is pretty rigorous, and I mean, it could be a model for a lot of different universities, but also other institutions that are in urban areas. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, our sustainability team and our goals and our approach to the future, you know, generations, whether it's here in the city or Penn in general, it, it's collaborated upon. It's all the way up through up to the president. I mean, it is a big issue uh, to make sure whether it's zero waste, lead certification, it, we're all here to help structure our operation to not negatively impact later operations. I wouldn't say that what we do is the way to do it. You know, it just works for us. And so to be a model for, let's say, other city universities and schools, uh, perhaps in how we structure, I guess, our efforts to get to our goal would be more than what I would model than, hey, you have to model what Penn does because Penn said so. Uh, we're, We're not trying to be like that. But, you know, I know some schools and and I work part of the APA part of the APA corporation. It's a association, sorry. And I get to meet other folks from different universities who, for whatever reason, they may not want to be LEED certified, but they may want to follow LEED certifications just to know that they're doing something or whatever, for whatever reason, like I said. But for us, what we do here, it really seems to work towards a common goal uh, that I'm in favor of, yes. I mean, it really, it depends on the functionality. It depends on our climate. It depends It depends on the aesthetics and what we want to see out there and how our community wants to use our campus. Uh, if you go out there now, there's not much going on student-wise. We're in between sessions, but come fall and all the events and all the schools and centers and kids and activities, it, it really shines. And I think that's how we base it upon is the functionality. One project that I think many Philadelphians are fond of particularly the downtown crowd, is, uh, I believe you call it Penn Park, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right along the expressway. Yeah. Can you talk about Penn Park, Craig, in terms of, because I actually can't remember myself what the site was originally and what all went into it in terms of uh, its acquisition, design, and development. And as, as I recall, it's also multi-use. Is that right? It is multi-use. So it was created, Penn Park, 2010, 2011, I want to say, in around that time frame. Prior to what is now Penn Park, I, I don't know offhand what it was used for. It was open space. It could have been laydown space or just unclaimed space, yeah. parking space, that kind of stuff. Uh, it sits between two rail lines, the CSX line, the Amtrak lines, the regional lines. They all kind of intermingle somehow through or around Penn Park. For those who don't may not know, it does sit on the left bank of the Schuylkill. And it's about 25 acres or so, give or take. And it is a multi-used, multi-use park. It's a, as far as a park is concerned, it's open seven days a week. It's a public park. It has sporting fields. It has open common ground, native areas, 
and just a lot of nice vistas to just relax. But it is multi-use. We have a softball field right in the middle of it that's used by the uh, obviously the softball team, but it's a, it's a multi-event style mini stadium, if you would. Uh, we have two rather large soccer fields. They're all synthetic. So there's a lot of events, concert events, uh, springtime, you know, spring fling events, that kind of stuff. We have eight gardeners that are specific to the park and we have a few hard circus staff as well and then just give you a shout out to all my staff because if it wasn't for them i don't think uh, we'd be here where we are they do such a great job uh, so we cover it like i said seven days a week and we treat it as it's like a, a a public park with penn sporting event you know structures inside as well there's a tennis center and that kind of stuff but it's it's beautiful also has a pedestrian a uh, walking path, isn't that right? That loops it does. It does have a pedestrian walking path or running jogging path that loops through. We host a few events each year, whether it's uh, charitable events for you know walk run style events or biking events. Either they're through the park for a little bit, or they at least start in and around that area and then head out through Philly and back. And it's it's well used right now. We're using it for a lot of the camps, so the kids are out of school now, and you'll see a lot of camps starting up soccer camps and tennis camps, that kind of stuff. How is it working out for you in terms of water delivery uh, and, and irrigation? So the park itself has, when it was built, there's a cistern collecting a lot of the, if not all the storm water for the most part uh, that we tap into for our irrigation to, to irrigate the, the plant material oh, fantastic. And, and the turf grass. And if by whatever reason that, that would go dry, uh, we do have the backup, the city feed backup. Uh, currently, we are renovating the wiring and the electrical wiring for that irrigation system. It's just a little bit antiquated now. Like your cell phone, things need to be upgraded. Um, and so we're having some connectivity and communication issues. And we're in this, it's a rather large project. If you, if you can imagine what rewiring 25 acres of irrigation systems. Uh, but just for that reason, to ensure that moving forward, we are drawing out of that cistern and we are collecting data and able to turn off and on valves and whatever it may be at a moment's notice electronically, not just manually. Yeah. Does the cistern ever run dry? I mean, is it collect enough water throughout the, the year that you can use it throughout July, August and September? Uh, it has run low. I don't believe it's run dry. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. And even though we didn't have much snowfall and precipitation over the winter, we are at a good level right now. Although it, we are kind of in a mini mini drought, if you would. Right. We've had a few rainfalls perhaps even today. Uh, but it's a, it's a rather large area. So there's a lot of opportunity for that water to get collected. It's a collect a series of tanks, I'm assuming? It's one big tank is what oh, I'm told. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, you know what's really neat about the park is that you have an amazing collection of trees mm -hmm. uh, around the edges of it in critical areas where people can actually take a break and sit under a tree yeah, yeah. and have, have lunch. But you also have behind the park a garden that mm -hmm. the food is donated to local communities and to students who might not have some money for food or... Yeah. How does that, you know, you've got, you have that too. And it, it just amazes me that you have all of that there yeah. on the, at the park. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. So yeah, about, I want to say about five, six years ago, maybe mm -hmm. that, 
yeah. uh, they they started to really grow no pun this garden and, and and expand on it you know whether it's strawberries and whatever it may be or vegetables uh there's a team of of student workers and and just community members who come in and do harvest this material and these these fruits and uh, of their labor for the local community uh, it does sit I want to say just south of the South Street Bridge, which is closer to the south side of the park itself. And it's out of the way, not that it's no means in the way, but it's not impacting the other events that go on in Penn Park. So we were able to just expand on that area, get them some irrigation, get them some resources, you know, whether it's hoop houses or, you know, just temporary structures to ensure that they are successful. I was down there and I I was incredibly impressed with how it was run and how they were weighing the vegetables and Mm -hmm. doing all that. And again, a tree-lined area along the way so that, you know, you get that noise buffer from the highway so that you're constantly thinking about how the land is managed so that it's managed in a way that you're not getting that harsh sound of the city. Because there's many places when you go on Penn's campus that you would never know you were in the city. That's what's so incredible about your your landscapes. It is neat, especially if you look down on Penn Park from, let's say, Walnut Street and looking down and, and what you see because you're above the trees there. It's almost like looking at a Central Park from a higher elevation, right. just in a smaller capacity. Or, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if somebody were to ask me, what would you not put next to a sports field? Well, I wouldn't really put a tree, a deciduous tree next to a sports field. But we have both and we've mixed and, and brought both of those relationships together and we maintain what we can. And, and we know that come fall time, we have to do maybe perhaps a little bit more work to have those fields ready for, for game day, let's say, uh, knowing that, you know, whatever it may be, just to the west of that field is going to be blowing a little bit of leaves our way. <laughs> right, right, right. But you do have a good bit of conifers, which are not as problematic for for that reason near sports field which is much better yeah okay. and, and you get that nice green barrier all the time mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about your historic trees because a lot of people might not know about the historic trees on your site absolutely so for those who may not know uh we have this mighty treaty elm which is a few hundred years old sitting in right in the dead hearts smack center of our campus in front of college hall not too sure how old but I was told, you know, Ben Franklin, perhaps he may have even planted the tree. It's so darn old, but it's a, it's a cutting from another older historic elm. Uh, but it is huge in nature. It just the canopy itself must stretch, I don't know, I'm going to say 50 feet wide. Um, it's just very formidable. Uh, and that's just one of many, but that's the one that we really treat and stand out. Well, we don't treat it, but we just, you know, it's like a, a beacon for us. But yes, if you go down, let's say, uh, looking down Locust Walk and you see all the the London Plains and the Zelkovas, they're huge and they just grow to the high heights and and big canopies producing all kinds of nice shade and just a great spectrum to look through, especially in in, in an evening winter or early spring, looking down this, what you want to call a tunnel of canopy. And similar to an old historic town that might have very historic trees on their, you know, streets and, and on the sides. It's good. As we, we are concerned sometimes because the age of these trees, we don't want them to all, you know, move on at the same time. So we, we have that in the back of our minds. So we, we continue to plant 
strategically. So if you do go down Locust Walk, you may see a smaller tree just behind it growing and, and trying to catch up, so to speak. So right. in future years, we have the continued uh, success of these canopies. But for those who haven't gone through it, I, I certainly recommend just walking the site and seeing these 100 and 200 year old trees. I know when I brought my, my landscape management class there last fall mm-hmm. to have a tour with you and they chattered about it and they wrote about it in their in their documents that they had to send me. And I think I shared a couple of them with you, but they yeah. were so impressed with the trees. They were they had no idea what was in the center of that campus because they'd never been there. And that was telling, you know. It, it is. And and we do have a, a a systematic approach of maintaining these trees. You know, we have north, south, east, west quadrants, so to speak, but we we have the core. We actually have a core quadrant which is that locust walk, you know, it's just the heart of our campus. And so, you know, for safety, these old trees, we have to look up and often to make sure that the conflicting or dead wood, that kind of stuff is taken care of expeditiously. Right now, we're doing a lot of our, you know, preventative maintenance on our trees because we have this opportunity with the kids out of the semester. So yeah, you know, it's really neat. Uh, All our trees are labeled. All wow. the big structures. So if you go through and you don't know much about, you know, what the Latin name or whatever it may be, or what just the, what the common name of a tree is, uh, if you look for the little little tag, little sign, the plastic extension sign, uh, kind of gives you everything you need to know about it. I'm remembering now, and I'm sure Eva will too. One of our first guests was uh, Corey Bassett, and she was an intern at the Morris Arboretum. She's now associated with University of British Columbia. But her work, I think for me, foundationally kind of set some of the things I think about with the podcast is uh, she did an analysis of, I think she worked with uh, with a mature London plane and just kind of crunched the numbers from multiple angles in terms of what that tree does in its lifetime in ter- and uh, played that against the investment of maintenance costs and how it all is a thumbs up situation versus a quick decision to cut a tree down, grind the stump and plant something maybe two and a half inches in diameter. In other words, you spend the money on maintaining something that has been uh, doing the carbon capture for 35, 55 years, or in the case of that elm, you know, over a hundred years, it really is the right way to direct resources. Yeah, I agree. A great example of that is our Palestra area on 33rd Street, which used to house our tennis courts. Now it's Shoemaker Green. There is a lawn, 10,000 square foot lawn in the middle of Shoemaker Green, surrounded by new trees and older trees and about three or four London plane trees that sit high atop the Palestra as far as elevation goes, producing a lot of shade and that carbon you were talking about, the carbon intake, stormwater management. And so to take a 30-inch caliber tree out would be an overwhelming task to duplicate getting that type of return in you know, in a series of smaller caliber installs. Uh, yes, sometimes we do have to remove trees for whatever reason, whether it's for decline or a new building, that kind of stuff. We certainly take those into consideration. You know, we're building a new building down at, it's called the Ott Center. It's an indoor track facility 
closer down towards our athletic fields. And we did have to remove a few trees, uh, but we managed to figure out how much that was taking up, you know, caliber wise. And we found locations in and around that area to replant a good amount of trees. It's, it's just a good solution to something that it was inevitable anyway. But yeah, it's really special. But the historic trees are something else here at, here at Penn. Well, and I think you're you're addressing the climate crisis too, because mm-hmm. you're you're always concerned about stormwater capture yeah. to be able to reutilize without having to pull sources from someplace else. Um, you're trying to keep things local. The other thing, I think you're more conscious than a lot of places where you are maintaining those old trees, but also you're always thinking of continually adding trees. Even if some have to be removed for building, you are constantly putting more trees in. I know that was very impressive to me when I first came on the tree advisory committee, how your trees are constantly being added and where we need more. And let's look around and see if we can find another spot for another group of trees or Mm -hmm. that type of thing. And I, I think that really goes a long way because you're reducing the overall heat island effect where you're located. I'm all for that. But I also have to consider uh, the functionality of the campus. So, for instance, right. a student still needs a place to play. You know, they need a place to throw a Frisbee. Exactly. And to enjoy a, a cup of coffee or whatever it may be. And so we don't, you know, we, we have that strategic approach of, okay, what's the functionality of that space? Can we get another tree in this location? Well, we have alumni weekend and we have big gatherings in this area. So it might not be a good idea, but perhaps we can move it over here across the pathway, whatever it may be. And again, that's a team effort with folks from Fres as well as folks from other schools and centers and what their needs are. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good balance. Yeah. And tent pitching. I mean, that goes on on all college campuses. And it you does. always have to be mindful that you have enough lawn that you can pitch your tents without yeah. having to remove limbs off of a tree or having a whole tree come down because you need that space for a tent. You know, yeah. that's... Yeah. That's something that some people don't even think about, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're fortunate. We have a lot of space for those tents. But as trees grow, spaces do get smaller. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, and it just for our listeners' sake, they have 299 acres on Penn's main campus. And maybe even it's bigger now, maybe because you're acquiring more property. I don't know. But that was on the last website that I looked at uh, for 299 acres. And that's really impressive. It's it's an impre- and it's an, a lot of it's a lot of maintenance and of course you have the salt from the road that you have to be mindful of what you're going to be picking from a salt perspective what type of tree is going to be able to tolerate that and be re- really resilient and the type of chemicals that you might have to put down on the on the sidewalks during the winter time mm-hmm. um, sure that you use not all salt but other things as well so and it does and it is about 300 i don't know with Penn Park it might even be 320 ish 25 acres, 325 acres with a vast majority of issues that you're talking about. And and we just manage them at the best of our abilities, whether it's magnesium based products for, for ice melt, communicating with the with the streets department and the state. We have states and street highways running through Penn. So there's a lot of folks that, you know, we have to communicate with and hey, when are you going to be down on this lot? When are you going to be here to plow? We, we don't know that. And maybe we're dropping a plow just to get our kids across the street and then they come through. And we have a pretty good number of street trees too. Uh, they take a beating uh, just from all the traffic and the use around these trees. But, you know, we keep monitoring them and they do grow. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, they get hit and 
branches come off or trees come out, but uh, we keep at it. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, as we wrap up, Craig, mm-hmm. I guess I'd like to ask, I meant to point out, and I'm sure you're well aware that, you know, one of the great landscape architects of the United States is Ian McCarg. And I think I was looking at his book in college, Design with Nature. Observationally, do you have anything you want to say about native plants versus the successful trees, species that we've brought in from other countries? See, that's a good question. So we try our best to, you know, have a nice plethora, if you would, of different types of species on this campus. And again, with our landscape architecture department, they're really uh, involved more in that than I am as far as the native species that we want to bring back, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. especially uh, Sam Royer. He's one of the supervisors at Penn, specific to Penn Park. And he's really done a great job of introducing some of these types of plant materials back into the Penn Park area for whatever reason. Uh, we had that high line, CSX line, that runs over Penn Park. And so to keep folks traffic of pedestrians going certain ways, he's been able to grow these areas underneath the high line, so to speak, to enjoy the, the area, but yet let's move them in this direction so that they're not hanging under a structure that's, you know, just right above you. He's incorporated these beautiful aesthetics into what was already a beautiful park, utilizing the ability of himself, education-wise, and whatever he may have to replant these areas with native species. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then at the same time, you had mentioned like the Zelkovas along Locust Walk. Mm-hmm. And it really does seem to continue to be one of those species that checks all the boxes. You know, Absolutely. it doesn't give you storm damage. It doesn't have insect disease issues. It even, I think, performs pretty well in terms of root and sidewalk conflicts and stuff like that. I don't know if there's a native that compares. I don't know either. I see more Zelkova in parking lots, just local lots as shade trees. Like you said, how I hardly see any root issues, you know, pushing up through the asphalt, whatever it may be, uh, of that V-shaped tree, we'll say. For me, as far as trees go, it's more of a fast grower. It's able to uh, root well. Right. And it seems to uh, work in those adverse conditions that perhaps another tree wouldn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The stress, the stress of the urban city certainly does go well with Zelkova. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it certainly does. Well, <laughs> we always have to ask this question on our, our show because we want to know what is your favorite tree or group of trees that kind of sings to you as, as how, and I would say your spirit tree. What is that if you have one? I do. That's kind of weird, but perhaps not for this podcast, but... No, nothing's weird on here. (laughs) Nothing's weird on here. So I'm more in favor, if I had to pick a tree to to bring with me to a deserted island, would be the Metasequoia glyptostroboides. I love the Dawn Redwood. To me, first, I mean, I had to memorize, you know, we all had to memorize trees and and their their genus and species and, and, and whatever it may be. I thought that was a really cool name for a tree when I first heard it and I wrote it down and I misspelled it about a billion times, even to today, but it is a formidable Dawn Redwood to me. It's got a nice shape. It stands tall. It's pronounced in itself in a landscape. It's a beacon to me of hope. And where I do play golf, we have three of them on the golf course. They're not in the way. 
they're good targets to, to for, for sight lines, whether you're playing or just walking. And they look dead in the winter. And then they come back. Um, they're fast growing. So they'll establish for you well in a, in, a, in a landscape early. You may have to remove one if you planted them too close, you know, a couple, eight years later or so. I just, yeah. And then when I take a caddy on the golf course, uh, if we're close to those types of tree, that tree, I, I tell him a little bit about it. And typically he's 15 years old and he doesn't really care. And he's, but uh, I get a kick out of it. But 15 years from now, he'll remember it. I hope so. I have to tell you that after all the years <laughs> and the hundreds and hundreds of students that I've taught, I think I've only had two or three that spelled the word wrong. And it's the most difficult words to spell. <laughs> and I can never figure that one out, Craig. I can't. Uh, it's just, <laughs> you know, and during identification classes, I remember, I mean, I, I identified this one and got it right. But, you know, for grasses, I remember coming up on the grass and saying, oh, that's Kentucky bluegrass. And I would write it down and hand it in and then go to the next plot and be like, oh, no. This is Kentucky bluegrass. I wonder what that was. Um, I hope I get partial credit just for getting the Latin right, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I never got the Dawn Redwood wrong. <laughs> a red oak, a white oak. I, yeah. Perhaps I messed them up, but um, never this yeah. tree. Yeah. Well, we're thrilled that you could be with us today. And we'll look forward to maybe even tapping into your landscape architects to have them come on to talk because I'm sure they have a lot of information that they can share about what they do and Mm -hmm. and talk about that too. So, Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it's been great, Craig. A lot of insights today. Thanks for all the great work you're doing at the uh, University of Pennsylvania campus. You got it. Take care. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.